This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, January 9th. Canada officially opens its doors to the family members of Canadians still in Gaza, but with no certainty it can actually get people out. We'll talk to the Minister of Immigration and hear from a man trying to get his family to Canada. Plus, former U.S. President Donald Trump makes the case that he is immune from prosecution on charges of plotting to overturn the 2020 presidential election. We'll talk to our reporter in Washington about what went down inside the D.C. courtroom. And the arrest of a Rebel News reporter while he tried to interview the Deputy Prime Minister has set off a firestorm of criticism. The Power Panel weighs in on that. The Gaza Strip sees its fourth month of war. The World Health Organization warns the healthcare sector is collapsing at a rapid pace. Hospitals report dozens more casualties after a night of heavy airstrikes. Canadians continue to worry about their family members who remain stuck in that region. But today, a sliver of hope for those hoping to be reunited with their loved ones. A new temporary visa program set to allow 1,000 Palestinians into Canada is now accepting applications. The program would allow family members of Canadians to seek refuge here for three years. Mark Miller is the Minister of Immigration. Minister, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Minister. Uh, so applications for this program open today. Uh, how quickly can successful applicants start to hear back of whether or not they can get passage to Canada? Well, this is, David, a, a, a pretty quick process to get into place, all things being said. Obviously, in a, in a humanitarian crisis that is uh, Gaza, we want to get people to safety as quickly as possible. But uh, there are concerns in and around safety. So the three-stage process that was launched today is one that will require people to submit information um, and in some cases go through biometrics in uh, in, in Cairo. So um, we want to get people to safety as quickly as possible. Uh, it's something that we committed to, but it's something that will take, uh, will take some time. No guarantees being that we can actually get people out, uh, in this case of, of the RAFA border crossing, because these are, are elements that are not under the control of, uh, of Canadian authorities. But um, the objective here is to make sure that people that have loved ones uh, with a connection to Canada can come here for uh, some temporary safety while uh, while the crisis continues. Okay, there's a few, you touched on a few things here that, that I wanted to explore. Uh, let, let's start with just getting them out of Gaza in the first place, um, because that is an enormous challenge, because Egypt and Israel and uh, control uh, the inflow and outflow of people through the Rafa border crossing. So have you secured any guarantee from those two states that people Canada picks for this program will be able to get out and get into Egypt and, and make their way to Canada? Uh, no, we haven't. And in fact, in addition to those two actors, Hamas, a terrorist organization that has committed untold atrocities, has their word to say and sometimes plays games at that same border crossing. So the concern is extreme uh, and the undertakings are often ones that are that are tenuous at best. We saw and had experience with that with trying to get out Canadian citizens themselves out of Gaza with windows opening and closing sometimes on, uh, on very short notice. So it's something we'll have to work with on the ground with the authorities. Uh, the Israeli authorities and security people have their own view as to what a list would look like and, and names on those lists and undoubtedly would subject them to some verification once, we, once that is achieved. 
Canada would do its own biometrics in, in Cairo. So no guarantee that people can get out, uh, but the effort is worth it. And it's one that there has been significant uh, attention to in Canada and demands from Canada to act. We think this is the humane thing to do for Canadians that have uh, connections to people that are trying to just simply stay alive. Um, and, and we're quite hopeful that we'll be able to do that. But it will require the same work that we put into getting Canadians out uh, just a few short weeks ago. Is it more difficult to do, uh, knowing that these people who you would be trying to get out are not Canadian citizens? I, I mean, people who came out before with all of those complications were at least citizens of the country, which gave the embassy there a certain weight in dealing with the foreign states, but this would not be the case here. Certainly, and I think, you know, it, it, it isn't necessarily uh, up to the host country for in Egypt in this case to say that they're going to accept people uh, based on uh, a policy that Canada has, has put forward. When it comes to your own citizens or permanent residents, there's a different protocol. Um, you wouldn't be performing, for example, biometrics on Canadian citizens seeking to flee a country. In this case, you have no certainty as to what the background of those people are. Uh, for historical reasons, Gazas tend to be Gazans tend to be heavily documented or have documentation. So there are there can be all sorts of issues and challenges along the way. What I would say, David, though, is that we have had some limited success in getting people out that aren't Canadian citizens and do have uh, a connection to Canada. In, in some cases, some very young uh, girls that were injured, and we were able to secure their safe passage from Egypt to Canada so that they wouldn't get returned to Gaza. Uh, so we have some experience in, able, in being able to do this, but now in an institutionalized way with a policy, it'll be something that'll come with some volume, and, and that's something that um, we'll do our best at. But again, mm-hmm. no firm guarantees that we'll be able to achieve this goal. The, the other complication I see here, Minister, is that you're looking for biometrics that are up to date, you're looking for passports, um, with people having to, say, flee their homes or having their homes bombed out, uh, you know, I- inside Gaza, they may not have those, they could be lost, they could be destroyed. How do you deal with those complications if people just don't have these things uh, that, that are required to take part of this program? Well, what we won't be able to compromise is uh, is the security aspect of this, David. But when it comes to people's ability to identify themselves, um, there will have to be a process whereby we will apply, uh, you know, a risk-based analysis of of what that looks like. If we're talking about someone, or uh, and, I, and I hate to speculate with mm-hmm. events that have not happened, but when you're talking about and an, you know some kids that have lost their parents. Obviously, uh, you're not going to be as worried about uh, the security profile of some four-year-olds as you will with respect to someone that perhaps is of adult age uh, and has some history uh, without documentation. So those are all on-the-ground analyses that we'll have to do, sometimes on a case-by-case basis. Um, but we are confident that we will be able to welcome the numbers that we have announced publicly that we will uh, be able to welcome, which for now is uh, is a thousand, but with some flexibility when we see the ultimate number. The, the uh, National Council for Canadian Muslims says a thousand is not ambitious enough. It's it's too small of a number, and I wonder, Minister, is it does, does the website shut down once a thousand people apply, or does it shut down once a thousand people have been approved? Uh, so no, I, we're going to get we're going to try. It would be it, it would be pointless to sort of shut things down uh, once sort of a, a thousand applications come in of, of, of varying quality. We want to get a sense of what that volume is and, and we will be flexible. Uh, you know, we don't have a sense of what the numbers are that we're dealing with. We're, we're, we're speculating. People can have various iterations of, of family connections and various levels of desire to sponsor people. I, obviously, I'm not presuming that 
people want to leave their relatives in a, in, a, in a war zone. But clearly, we'll look at that volume and, and be flexible in, in, in looking perhaps even to expand it if the volume does uh, exceed 1,000. But for now, um, the website or portal right. just opened today. We're looking at relatively low volume, but again, it's too early to speculate whether that's just a, a temporary thing or, or something that'll last. Expand it by what order of magnitude, Minister? Because as I, I reference... And I can't, can't speak publicly about that, David. We'll have to have a conversation as okay. a government uh, to look at what that, that would look like. What, if we look at very large volume, we're going to want to start looking at what other countries can start doing. Uh, clearly, this is a, a war zone and a, and a disaster area where it is um, hard to just get food or water uh, and people's safety is constantly being threatened. So if we see very large numbers, it's something we'll have to look at at our our partners to see who can host people fleeing a war zone. But when it comes to family members and those that are subject to the policy, Mm -hmm. uh, if we see numbers that make sense, I'm sure Canada will do as it always does and, and, and be flexible and open. Uh, just a quick question on another topic. Uh, there was a story done by my colleague Matthew Kupfer about a Russian anti-war activist who was afraid that she could lose her Canadian citizenship because of a conviction uh, in Russia for criticizing uh, the, the Putin regime. You tweeted today uh, saying that this uh, woman, Maria Kartasheva, I believe is how we pronounce her name, she will not be facing deportation and she will be invited uh, to become a Canadian citizen. What did you do there uh, to, to make this controversy, uh, make this issue go away? Well, look, we, we have a set of rules in, in Canada that prevents criminals from becoming citizens, and, and you have to have committed a crime in your country that is a crime in, in Canada. And 99% of the time, those types of rules are there for a very good reason, and, and they do a good job in making sure that um, undesirable people with criminal pasts do not become citizens. Uh, you know, there can be situations where that rule doesn't work. This is one of them, uh, and, and obviously, perhaps, the person in question had disclosed that she had... Uh, been an activist and perhaps had committed um, a, a crime in, uh, in in Russia, which uh, apparently has some element of of, of of double criminality in Canada, whereas it is perhaps potentially a crime in Canada. I, it didn't seem credible to me. It looked like it was in the level of, of political dissent that is legitimate, not only in a country like Canada, but um, should be in a country like Russia, and to penalize that person for having expressed herself and her views with respect to uh, the Putin regime would be would would be ludicrous. So um, she's been invited to become a citizen as she should have in the first place. But again, the, the rules are there for a reason. Most of the time, they catch uh, people that should not be Canadian citizens. And in this case, uh, it was it was it was the wrong turn. It was the wrong thing to flag her. And she will hopefully, if she says yes, become a citizen of Canada. So, just as a final question, was this something that your departmental officials uh, solved on their own, or is this something you intervened with directly as minister uh, to make happen? I, I, as in all these things, David, I don't talk too publicly about it, but um, I think you saw my my reaction, and people can conclude what they want from that. Okay, uh, Mark Miller, the Minister of Immigration. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, David. Okay, there have been some developments in Maria Kartasheva's bid for Canadian citizenship since we spoke to Minister Miller. This afternoon, she took part in a citizenship ceremony for, from her home in Ottawa, and she has officially become a Canadian citizen. Well, Ottawa, will return to this, will be offering temporary refugee visas to 1,000 family members of Canadians. Those applications open today, and Omar Omar is one Canadian who hopes he can be reunited with his family through this plan, and he joins us now. Omar Omar, it's nice to meet you. Thanks for taking the time. 
Thank you. Uh, we just heard uh, from the immigration minister, Mark Miller, who said there is some flexibility in how the government will assess the 1,000 recipients of the new temporary visa program. What's your reaction to what the minister had to say there? Well, I, I think, I mean, this announcement came too late for all of us. We've been panicking. We've been anxious the whole time. The whole the whole community is, is being under stress from day one about this war until now. So when we saw the number, we felt that extremely disappointed. Uh, and people, we, I had people calling me crying. It was like a, a thousand number, but I'm bringing more people. And then we started having fights in between our own community, people saying, why should you bring your family members and why you should bring your family members? And all these, all these, all these things and problems caused by the immigration, uh, Ministry of Immigration being um, not really obvious or, or even clear with us about what exactly their intentions are. I, I was listening to the Honorable Minister about the capacity that he's saying, that he's saying and that he's speaking about, but at the same time, to what capacity? We are really worried. And a thousand number is nothing. Well, the thousand, I mean, if you listen to the obstacles that need to be overcome that the minister <clears throat> laid out there, how optimistic you, are you that a thousand pe- people can even get out of Gaza with the permission of Hamas, of Israel and Egypt, and then meet the, the qualifications to get here? Because uh, the, 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 the obstacles are, are, are pretty significant there. So I have contact, I lived in the Gaza Strip my whole life, and I have contact on the grounds with everyone. Even I work with international organizations in the Gaza Strip, and I get information from the Gaza Strip and also from people who left, people who are leaving the Gaza Strip, and the names are actually published online in thousands. Um, the, the, the idea of giving that there are too many obstacles is a little bit alarming for all of us. Um, uh, plus, that when we see that they are talking about too too many obstacles and at the same time talking about a thousand person only, this for us makes us feel more uncomfortable about what exactly the government is thinking of. Um, yeah. Well, 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 surely there's things like Egypt could say no, Israel could say no, Hamas could say no. These are things that are outside of Canada's control. But you say a thousand isn't enough. I mean, what would be uh, an acceptable number uh, for Canada to take in? Keeping in mind, these are not Canadian citizens. In previous cases, let's remember in previous cases, there was no cap. There was nothing about numbers. In previous cases, uh, Canada just brought people who needed refuge, period. And that was the whole case. Uh, in previous cases, even Canada brought people who doesn't even have ties to Canadians here or ties to Canada. And those people are now PR. Um, so I think that question should be is, why do we even have a cap? Well, there's a cap on Afghan refugees, for example, that were taken in, uh, right? I think it was much higher than a thousand, obviously, um, but but there have been caps. So I just, if a thousand, like uh, an uncapped uh, relocation plan, is, is what you want to see, or is it just a larger number than a thousand? Well, there are the criteria. The criteria is talking about extended family members and mm-hmm. his nephews, uh, etc. So. Yeah, you're not talking about 100,000. We're not talking about 30,000. You're talking about very limited numbers of people. Right. But the idea of having one cap made all of us being very, very, very exhausted of thinking what exactly is happening because we don't know the numbers. The Canadian government does not know the numbers. He just mentioned that um, they will measure the numbers. Of, they want to see the sense of the numbers of people that are applying and eligible as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not talking about transfer. These people and most of these people will actually go back to the Gaza Strip, including my family, uh, including my parents. I was begging my parents to come to Canada for years, and they never wanted to come here. But after they lost everything, these people have no infrastructure to go and survive, and they need health care. So that's the minimum. I can get them refuge for three years. I am 100% confident that many of these people will go back.
Right. So I, I know you've been filling out forms all day uh, since the web page opened, uh, trying to get people here. Um, who are you trying to get here, and how are they doing right now uh, in Gaza? What are you hearing from them? Well, uh, we've, we've heard from many international organizations and reputable human rights organizations that Gaza is facing starvation. So, number one, if you survive um, a sniper bullet or a bomb here and there, you, you might not survive starvation. The situation there is extremely severe. Um, I don't think many people understand the, the intensity of the situation in the Gaza Strip. It's really, really severe. Um, what, what I want Canada to do is to do... Um, to proceed with this as soon as possible. We, we, we can't wait for more uh, on this. You mentioned that your parents, who you're trying to get here, um, how many people do you hope uh, in, in that, that would meet the qualifications uh, you can bring to Canada under this program? Well, um, I have my parents, I have my sisters, and I have my sisters and brothers-in-laws and their, their families. Uh, we're talking about between 5 to 10, 15 maximum. I, I don't really know if, if the whole policy applies to all of them uh, because we do have also a limit for the age of siblings for 22, for example, and people are even raising the concern about this. In, in, in a Palestinian culture, um, like uh, siblings can be over 22 and they are still single and they still, uh, they're still dependent on their family because, you know, the Gaza Strip has no work. The, the unemployment rate is extremely high. So people want these people to get out to seek refuge and have a good life in Canada. Is your family safe? Uh, we've spoken with Palestinian Canadians with family in Gaza who have suffered just enormous losses um, throughout this conflict. How is your family endured throughout this? So I will have I will answer about my family and also I want to raise the voices of those who lost family members while they were waiting for this policy and those who lost extended family members and even parents in the Gaza Strip after the policy was published and after until like from the policy was published in December 21st to January 9th there are people we lost people from our own community who are direct family members and that's why I'm saying about the urgency of the situation. For my parents, sometimes they're safe, sometimes they're not safe. And the reason because of that is the Israeli army uh, moves in some areas and bomb, and bomb some areas and then they come back and then they, they withdraw from, from the same areas. So the battles are from block to block and they go in and out the whole time. Uh, sometimes I get lucky and, and I get hold of them uh, maybe once a day, uh, maybe once a week. It, like we never know. It's a survival mode. Right. Well, Omar, Omar, uh, I, hope, uh, I hope your parents and the rest of your family are safe. Thank you so much uh, for, for speaking with us today. Thank you. As a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. And I did nothing wrong. Absolutely nothing wrong. I'm working for the country. Should a former U.S. president be immune from prosecution? Donald Trump and his lawyers appeared in a Washington courtroom today to make that case. Trump is accused by a special counsel of trying to overturn the 2020 election. The federal judges will deliver their ruling at a later date, but so far they appear skeptical of Trump's argument. The CBC's Katie Simpson has been following the hearing in Washington, and she joins us now. All right, Katie, uh, what went down inside that courtroom? Well, Donald Trump's legal team is saying basically anything he did or didn't do in the lead up to January 6th is essentially none of the court's business. And that is because they say he has presidential immunity, meaning he can't be prosecuted for alleged crimes while he is president. In front of a three-judge appeals panel, Trump lawyers argued that there is only one exception to that rule. The only way a president can be prosecuted is if first... 
he's impeached and then found guilty by the Senate. And guess who that exception is tailor-made for? Donald Trump, who in 2021 was impeached but not found guilty by the Senate in his trial there. The judges grilled Trump's team and over this and used extreme hypotheticals to test the limits of that argument. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is, no. is My answer is qualified, yes. Prosecutors who are part of the special counsel's team repeatedly use the word frightening to describe the defense's arguments, deeply concerned about the lack of accountability in the scenarios they laid out, and in this specific instance. Never before has there been allegations that a sitting president has, with private individuals and using the levers of power, sought to fundamentally subvert the democratic republic and the electoral system. Uh, And frankly, if that kind of fact pattern arises again, uh, I think it would be awfully scary if there weren't some sort of mechanism by which to reach that uh, criminally. There's no timeline on when exactly the court will release its decision, but whatever it is, you can expect it's going to be appealed to the Supreme Court. Okay, I I almost jumped in early there because it it reminds you of the the, the famous quote from Richard Nixon in his interview, in the Frost-Nixon interviews, where he said, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal by definition. It's kind of the argument that's playing out now. So what are you watching in, in the days and weeks to come on this? Well, we're going to focus on some politics. It's a look forward to the campaign trail. The Iowa caucuses are next week. And shameless plug, tune in to CBC News <laughs> as I will be in Iowa as part of our coverage team covering all of the things. Uh, Trump is absolutely dominating in the competition there. He's expected to very easily win the state and get off to a really strong start uh, in the race to be the next Republican presidential nominee. When you win Iowa, it really it's sort of this moment where you can build momentum and build a narrative to demonstrate, look, I'm a leader. I won this. I can win more. Now, largely Trump's popularity has remained strong despite all of the legal problems, except, except we may be seeing a bit of a crack in just one state. In New Hampshire, Nikki Haley, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., appears to have broken Trump's grip on the race. A new poll out from CNN has her within single digits. It is striking distance, really, for the state's primary, which takes place later this month. Also tune in to CBC News. I will be also in New Hampshire covering that race. Uh, but the Trump re-election team recognizes that the, this she's a threat, and they've launched very intense attacks on Haley's campaign. All right, well, Katie, if you're going to be in Iowa, we want you on the show. So uh, just sure. mark that down. All right, we'll see you. And New Hampshire. Yes, that's for sure. All right, we'll see you next week. That's the CBC's that's Katie Simpson in Washington. David Menzies of Rebel News was arrested yesterday after an altercation with the RCMP while trying to ask Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland questions about Iran. Here's what happened. Ms. Freeland, how come the IRGC is not a terrorist group? Why is your government supporting Islamo Why am I under arrest? He, 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 he brought my 
In a statement to CBC News, York Regional Police, who were assisting the RCMP security detail, wrote, it was determined that no credible security threat existed and the subject was released unconditionally shortly thereafter. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev has commented on the video on social media, writing, this is the state of freedom of the press in Canada in 2024 after eight years of Justin Trudeau. And the CBC has just received this statement from the RCMP. As publicly reported, RCMP protective policing resources were involved in an incident while deployed on a protective operation. The RCMP is looking into the incident and the actions of all parties involved. No further comment is available at this time. Now, Rebel News says it may sue both police forces and Minister Freeland. Did the police overstep here? Time to bring in the power panel. Emily Nicola is a columnist with Le Devoir. Vanguard Strategy CEO Michelle Cadario is here, as is Matthew Dubé, Vice President of Proof Strategies and a former NDP MP. And here with me in the studio is Kate Harrison, a Vice Chair, the Vice Chair at Summa Strategies. Okay, gang, uh, look, there's a lot going on here. Um, this is not the first time David Menzies has been arrested. Uh, he was arrested uh, for harassing, allegedly, Melissa Lanceman, a Conservative MP, uh, a candidate at the time. And there's a whole bunch of things about Rebel News that we can get into in, in this conversation. But, Michelle, I just want to start with you. Uh, you worked with um, Paul Martin. The RCMP security detail was around him when he was Prime Minister. Very different media environment than the one we're dealing with now. What did you make of what we saw in that video? Well, you know, I think we have to remember there's got to be room for everybody to be able to do their job. Um, certainly, journalists need to be able to do their job. The protective detail have a job to do as well as do the politicians. My experience with the with the Prime Minister's detail was that they were the absolute epitome of, uh, of responsibility. They took their job very seriously and they also appreciated that, um, that there had to be interaction with the candidate and the Prime Minister um, and people, reg the regular public, as well as journalists in that. And they always made room for that. So there was also certainly times when there was higher, higher threat levels. And those aren't things that are made public. But at those times, you know, it was a, a bit of a closer box around, uh, around the Prime Minister or around whoever they're going to do. So, you know, I, we don't know what was there. It is, you know, interesting to note that the only journalist who's ever been um, arrested um, is this one from the rebel mm -hmm. who, you know, has, has, and the last time they did it was to Melissa Lansman, a conservative MP. Um, and so, you know, it, that's, that's interesting detail as well about perhaps um, how he's conducting his business. From what we saw of the video, it, you know, it was as a lay person, um, it seems uh, not something that one would think someone would get arrested for, I'll, I'll say. But we also don't have the full context. And mm -hmm. I guess that will come out as the RCMP review it. Right. So, so Emily, uh, look, uh, Menzies, the rebel, uh, they're not part of the parliamentary press gallery, though the conservatives have been demanding yeah. that the parliamentary press gallery uh, take a position on, on this today. They would not be defined as a mainstream journalistic organization. They sometimes... Um, you know, they, they push to create controversy and then they fundraise on this. But Emily, what he did there in the video that we see, he's just walking along asking a question. I've done this many times in my career. I assume you've done this many times in your career. And he bumps into a police officer and then is arrested for assault. So all the issues with rebel media aside, what the yeah. police did there, what, what's your sense of that? He's just asking a question. He bumps into somebody and then he gets handcuffed and taken away. I think there is a there are so many different things that need to be taken into consideration. Um, 
it's true that what we see in the video, um, he's walking, walking toward her. He did arrive very fast in a way that can make a person feel, mm -hmm. you know, jumpy. Um, and that's probably part of what happened. And if you make a person feel jumpy and they see you there with rebel news that they don't, you know, consider you a real journalist, they might escalate more than if they saw a CBC mic. Uh, that that might have been part of the very, because it happens in the snap a couple of seconds of what, what happened. Um, there is a way for security to uh, make sure that a person leaves an elected official personal space while they're asking questions without arresting them. Um, and that's not what, what ensued. And so that's also an issue. Um, there's a third issue uh, that is not necessarily directly related to the video that I, I just want to put out there, um, is that there are a lot of women in politics who are being arrested, uh, sorry, harassed ar Mm -hmm. uh, physically mm -hmm. by, by citizens who follow them everywhere. And um, there is a question that needs to be asked in terms of if that citizen decides to become a journalist, then is the harassment something uh, that becomes, you know, a professional thing that we cannot say anything about? And so there are gender dynamics here. There's police overstepping. Um, there's the issue of the reputation of rebel news and that specific person's reputation. And then there's the issue of, is there a way to make sure that, you know, when journalists ask questions to, the polit to a politician, they leave them personal space without arresting the, the, the journalist mm -hmm. who's being maybe a little bit too, uh, too, coming too close too fast. And so there's, there's all of those things that could have been unfolded, uh, that could have unfolded differently, for sure. No, th th those are all very good points. So, so but Matthew, you know, you were an MP, you've been in scrums, right? I'm, I'm sure you've walked along with reporters so, uh, asking you questions. So I, I just want to play this moment again, uh, if we can just cue up the tape, where you see that the Mountie steps in a little bit uh, towards Menzies, and, and uh, he bumps who bumps into him before Minister Freeland, you know, moves to the other side of the pillar. And the Menzies said, excuse me, then he's told he's being arrested for assault. Now, I've banged in to the Prime Minister's uh, security detail, uh, Matthew, a few times in, in tight things. I've never been arrested for this. Is this a case of the police overstepping? Because while Emily makes very good points about the harassment of women in politics, Menzies was detained for assaulting a police officer and then later released. Is this, is this overstepping? It's a good question, but I think there's a few things that are important context. I think the first is a point that Michelle raised earlier about not knowing the full threat context around, uh, you know, Minister Freeland in this case, and obviously politicians more generally. There's definitely uh, a jumpiness that Emily alluded to as well that I think comes into play when there's certain factors to consider. And listen, I mean, it's I don't want to do a, a sports instant replay thing here on the video, uh, but. It, you wonder sometimes if the individual in question is deliberately being uh, confrontational with security detail in a way, to your point, you know, even alluding to yourself, David, you would not be, you know, it, it's clear when it's an accident versus someone who's trying to be confrontational for the purpose of the, of the format that these individuals are engaged in and the subsequent fundraising campaigns and social media attention that it garners among a particular audience. Um, and it's perhaps not... Uh, to be ignored uh, that and I, we've mentioned it a few times yeah. that the conservative deputy leader now of all people uh, then candidate Melissa Lansman was also involved in a similar incident so when you see a pattern uh, begin to emerge you do start to question uh, the way that the individual behaves you start to wonder what uh, you know how the individual is being perceived I suspect that there's a conversation to be had about whether you know the 
the security detail needs to be better briefed about individuals like this if they are going to be getting into these types of uh, sort of clickbaity, if you'll forgive the expression, confrontations with politicians. But um, yeah, it's a fair, it's a very fine line. But this is an unfortunate result, I think, of the the climate that we're in. That's very different than being in the House of Commons with accredited journalists scrumming uh, a former MP to to stick with uh, the example that you uh, drew out uh, just a moment ago. Kate, okay, what's your read on all of this one? Yeah, I, I mean, what I observe is is an obvious overstepping by by law enforcement. I do think if we were talking about um, this instance with another uh, journalistic entity, frankly, I think if we were even talking about it as a member of the public, and I, I think back to that incident in 2022 with Minister Freeland being obviously harassed yeah, verbally in, in Alberta, in Alberta. exactly right and uh, no consequence for that when I, when I think it actually would have very much been warranted uh, and then the treatment of this I think it's right for people to look at these two instances and say okay there seems to be a misapplication here uh, of um, of, of the law or how it, how it is being enforced. So I think it is an obvious overstep and had you know you taken a beat to, to answer the question uh, or had law enforcement not intervened in that way, that clip, that kind of fundraising moment that uh, Matthew is talking about wouldn't have been provided. And in fact, those kind of interactions happen on an almost daily basis with Rebel News and with other, uh, I'll say, non-traditional media outlets where the questions are asked and ignored and those clips aren't provided because of the way law enforcement handled this situation, um, they've been able to kind of make a moment out of this. Uh, and the longer they go without providing detail, like you know, the right. statement that you referenced, the longer without clarifying this, the bigger window that becomes. So, uh, Kate, just to stick with you, the conservatives have jumped on this, right? Because everything is an opportunity to play wedge politics now. Um, they say this is after eight years of Justin Trudeau, press freedom is under assault because journalists are being arrested for asking questions. Now, they don't mention that Melissa Lanceman, this incident a couple of years ago, where the same guy was arrested for whatever his interactions were with her. Um, why, what do you make of that? I mean, we have seen Pierre Polyev abuse journalists who mm-hmm. uh, work for Canadian Press and CBC for asking questions, you know, belittling them, you know, uh, in, in scrums on yeah. live TV. There's a confrontational tension right. there. So, yeah. like, you know, I, I mean, what do you make of this tactic uh, that they're employing here today on this one? Yeah, I, I think it, what we see them acting on now stems from the legacy beef that they have with mainstream media and, and kind of the relationship with government, right? So this adds another layer of complexity to... Um, you know, what the conservatives feel is a very favorable treatment by this government towards mainstream media organizations. They would probably point to, you know, C-18 and other legislation that has largely benefited mainstream Mm -hmm. organizations as being demonstrative of the closeness of that relationship. I like to think that if this were, again, another entity, the conservatives would also have something to say about the treatment of the press. We don't yet know because to a point made by a fellow panelist, you know, this is the only instance where where this has been applied in such this way. But Michelle, do you think this is a a defense uh, of press freedom or is this they've been calling out the press gallery for not taking a position on this? Or do you think it's an attempt to try to discredit, you know, the mainstream media, the Ottawa media uh, in particular? What, What do you think the end game is here for the conservatives? It's complete and utter hypocrisy is what it is. And they're, and they're just taking, you know, a certain situation and trying to make fuel out of it. He was absolutely silent on press freedom and, uh, and arresting journalists when this happened to Melissa Lansman. Um, and, you know, it's, it's incredulous to me that he's actually being taken seriously in terms of this statement that he's saying. Um, like, like, tone it down and come back to reality. If there, you know, there may be a operational issue that happened there, but um, I hardly think that um, P. 
Pierre Polyev has all of a sudden become the grandmaster of uh, standing up for, for journalistic integrity and press freedoms uh, in society. A- Emily, uh, what's your take on that? Um, I do think that there is obviously partisan politics at play. At the same time, regardless of the messenger, I think there is a message that is worth uh, or a conversation that is worth to be had, more generally speaking, in terms of what are the limits. Um, there is something to be uh, balanced, I think, in a climate where there is more and more people who are being ag- just very angry with politicians, mm-hmm. with reasons we might very much agree with or not agree with, and how to deal with that, how to let that anger express itself. Um, you know, we've seen several incidents, for example, in the last months of people... Uh, calling on elected officials to call for a ceasefire uh, in, in in Gaza and, and, you know, talking, for example, coming up to Melanie Jolie in a way that's very close. Nobody was arrested. Um, and I think it's important that people continue to be able to do that. Uh, and at the same time, we need to realize that if both pe- journalists and uh, citizens um, are being uh, more and more physically confrontational with elected mm-hmm. officials, it will eventually have an impact on who wants to have that job. Um, and the people who will be, I don't want to be accosted on the street and have people in my face from, you know, coming from behind at any time of day, most of them will be women. Yeah. And uh, those are the people who are most likely to not stop being interested in the job of being an MP if we normalize also this tactic of either protest and or asking questions. Matthew, I'm going to give you the last word on this, then we're going to pivot to our, our second topic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty clear that there's a message being directed to a specific audience. I think that's what's happening with Pierre Polyev's uh, tweet, uh, the post today that he made. Um, it's, you know, red meat, dog whistle, call it whatever political uh, communications metaphor you want. Um, this isn't an issue, I think, ultimately, that's important for people who are dealing with the issues that he likes to talk about, like affordability and housing and things like that. This is directed, I think, to a very specific group of people, the people who like to say that uh, Canada has become a dictatorship uh, in the last uh, eight years under the under Prime Minister Trudeau, hence, you know, him using essentially that language saying, you know, this is uh, Canada after eight years under Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, at the same time, it's also a very old hat because we heard the same thing uh, at the end of, uh, you know, in the last day, nine days of, of Prime Minister Harper's government, arguably before that even. Right. Um, so it, it, it's a recurring theme, but I think in this particular instance, um, he's very much speaking to the same audience that the fundraising email is and I think that's the biggest the most concerning thing here because it riles up a segment of people who think that uh, there's some kind of uh, you know power play going on here from the political class uh, and it emboldens a certain type of individual that I think just is going to exacerbate exactly this kind of situation today the security implications around it and let's not forget some of the things that we saw in the last election you know stones being thrown to prime minister and the Melissa Lansman situation is particularly important because because I think it's a reminder that uh, no party is immune to this, um, even if one party or another may be more culpable of, of emboldening it. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stone in a glass house, I think, for everyone in this instance. Okay, uh, I want to thank you for dealing with it with me, the Power Panel. Emily, Nicola, Michelle Cadario, Matthew Dubé, and Kate Harrison. Thanks so much, gang. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.